What's good, y'all? Um, let's see. Hopefully, everything is working here. Just getting logged in. All right. Um, hope those of you who were able to uh, catch the stream with Dr. Tommy Curry not long ago enjoyed that. If you weren't, you can definitely go to my YouTube channel and check that out. So please do. Um, this will be fairly short and sweet um, because it's already been kind of a long day and I still have to prep for classes tomorrow. So uh, I'm not going to take too long. Uh, this is a continuation on a, a discussion I started uh, last week on my Inner Light uh, show. And basically what this was was uh, a meditation on the 12 areas of life that, um, you know, black men need to be improved upon in order for our quality of life to improve in general. Um, what's up, Mr. Meech? What's going on, Ian? And, and Ian, shout out to you, man. Thank you for the support in the last show. Uh, you were definitely in the chat um, and I didn't get a chance to shout you out. I apologize, but good looking out. Much appreciated. Um, but as I let some people come in a little bit, just kind of wanted to give the discussion some context because it was definitely coming out of uh, an earlier discussion. So again, my inner light uh, show is every first and third Wednesday. And what I generally do is um, I broadcast from innerlightradio.com. Uh, and then I post it on YouTube, usually later that evening um, for people to, to check out uh, on the YouTube, in the YouTube community. And on second and fourth Wednesdays, I broadcast from YouTube and Facebook directly uh, via video. So uh, this is a new uh, kind of approach that I'm taking. And uh, I'm still kind of learning the ins and outs. I think my system is a little tired today because the video is dragging. So let me know if that's coming across to you guys. All right. All right, Mr. Meach, thanks a lot for the earlier show comment. Alpha Sigma, what's up? BK Hammer, Urban Warlock, BGS, good looking out. Um, Father's Time, uh, much appreciated. Coming back through, y'all. Y'all know I pretty much broadcast, you know, like once, maybe once a week on YouTube, but I'm trying to increase that. BGS has been telling me that I need to mess with the uh, the algorithm and get and get some of these up. But I want to make sure that I only come to y'all when there's something that uh, I have on my mind. Uh, so, um, again, as I get a little more comfortable in this space, uh, I'll be doing that. It's just a little different because at the end of the day, I'm still an old classroom teacher. I'm used to having a room of people to look at and I can kind of gauge responses and kind of go from there. But, you know, I'm still getting used to the online uh, dynamic and the radio one is even harder because you don't even have the visual component. So um, oh, I need to upgrade my Internet speed. Is that what I need to do? Yeah, it must be dragging on your end, too. I probably should have restarted my system. I think I left it asleep for a couple of days. But anyway, um, let me see. Is it real? It, it, BGS, tell me, is it dragging a lot? Because I can't really 
tell from my end. Okay, so let's see. I don't even know if it's if the responses are dragging. What is going on? Okay. All right. Well, even reading the responses, they're dragging. So, all right. So anyway. Uh, looks like we got about 48 people in here. Please hit the like button. Um, if you haven't uh, subscribed, please do so. Um, support the show um, if you get a chance. But last week, uh, I posted a video that I did on Interlight Radio where I was talking about, um, you know, what is the black masculinist agenda? And ultimately, you know, in a larger sense, the, the black masculinist agenda is about improving the quality of life for black men. That's ultimately what we're talking about, um, because by and large, you know, larger movements that deal with racism, that deal with, you know, blackness as a whole, don't generally, you know, target black men or black males of any age, for that matter. Uh, and so black men tend to go without. And I think from the interview with uh, Tommy Curry, many of you saw, if you didn't know already, um, that there is a severe dismissal. Um, of black males' interests, uh, and, and if anything, an over a severe overlooking of issues that pertain to black males that really do require attention. But if you don't target black men, the conversations never seem to happen. They seem to focus on either this generic everybody or very particular to certain groups, children, women, so on and so forth. But to talk about black men is tantamount to, um, you know, misogyny. They've been made synonymous in the public discourse. And that's part of the discussion I had with Dr. Curry on how that took place and how it continues to function. So we see that in the mainstream as well as, you know, in the academic space, you know, to to even say black men, you almost feel the room poise about where to go next. And if you're not, you know, deferring to other groups uh, in some kind of way, shape or form, uh, there's already a kind of dismissal that takes place. Um, good looking out, Mr. Meach. Appreciate that that donation. Um, so, as you know, the manosphere, for example, has been black manosphere in particular has been focused on black men, and that's it's it's well needed. Um, I wanted to bring the academic component to the discussion as well because it's needed, and I think there are many black men in the academy that are in the manosphere, if nothing else, listening, but. Uh, are not in a position to say very much because they know that their jobs uh, might come under question, you know, the pressure that they may get. Um, And so in that respect, um, I figure that there are a couple of us that are willing to do this work outright and that we need to at least start the discussion because my brothers online uh, have already been been carrying the weight of the world in that respect. And black men across class, across age, across um, you know, uh, uh, you know, career or profession need to actually come together and have uh, some serious dialogue because many of us are having the same experiences. Um, whether you're making, you know, 10,000 a year or 100,000 a year, uh, there are some similarities in black male life that need to be addressed. Big poke dog, thanks for looking out. Um, so in that respect, I started the conversation by pointing out a series of areas that I think require um, some improvement and definitely some focus. And they tend to be areas where we're vulnerable, where black men are vulnerable 
Um, and we still, even in those vulnerable spaces, do not prioritize our own experience. So in the first video, I talked about, you know, the judicial context, judicial and carceral practices, you know, uh, family and parenting, labor, uh, self-health, um, you know, health care um, and sexuality. Those are the areas that I was charting out as the first half. Now, the list is not in any particular order. It's not listed in an order of importance. It's not listed in terms of um, any kind of, uh, of sequential or hierarchical framework. If anything, I would pl uh, put them in a pie chart because I think each area is extremely important. So it's not listed in any particular order in that respect, but it nonetheless speaks to uh, areas of black male life that definitely require attention. Now, again, these are areas where we're vulnerable. These are areas where we in many ways don't know how to prioritize ourselves and we need to um, you know, shout out Alpha Sigma, appreciate the support. Um, but these are areas where I think that if we're able to, um, my mouse is tripping. There we go. Um, I think if we're able to shift how we think, uh, we can actually begin to have an effect. And by that, I mean, um, at the end of the day, if we can change our thinking about these matters. Some of these areas are completely within our control, or at least for the most part, and some of the areas may may seem not. You know, when you talk about the judicial system, it doesn't seem like there's a whole lot black men can do. But then again, if you talk about health, uh, you know, health in terms of diet, in terms of exercise, those are things we have more control over. Uh, we're still subject to the environment in a particular way, but we have to at least begin to think about what it is we need to do differently and how we need to conceptualize our relationship to the environment in these different areas uh, differently, right? So we need, to, we need to be able to do that in ways that we haven't necessarily been used to so far. So, you know, continuing on with the list, you know, after sexuality, now I don't think I went into any great depth uh, in terms of sexuality on my video last week, but I think the conversation with Dr. Curry if you uh, weren't there to check it, I think that one stands in so I don't have to re revisit it. Basically, uh, when it comes to sexuality in terms of sexual assault, rape, IPV, intimate partner violence, and intimate partner homicide, black men are particularly vulnerable, right? We're particularly vulnerable because there's been a longstanding perception, both in the academy and in mainstream media, that black men are inherently a threat, right? Black men are inherently a problem. And that, um, you know, we are particularly, you know, it's believable when we're accused of something, even without evidence. And when we talk about like the Me Too movement, that only grew. You know what I mean? It, it, the, the applicability of Me Too to black men was seamless. It was hand in glove. It, it really made it that much easier for these micro situations to be applied toward black men where even leering, looking too long, looking menacing, all of these things could be used against us. And I've been in those situations as well. Right. You know, it, it, even when, you know, I've had students that uh, that have told administrators that I look scary. And that's a justification for getting rid of me. Um, now, those are particular threats to black men that are predicated on ideas about black male, uh, black male uh, aggression, black male, you know, uh, boogeyman kind of things. Um, so in that kind of situation, uh, we have to learn how to prioritize ourselves. If you know that you are vulnerable to being 
accused of something you haven't done and that that accusation will go that much further because you're black and male, then we have to actually begin to uh, politicize our position. We have to begin to share information about how to use that um, in a different way. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of where I'm going with these. In each area, can we begin to think differently? Can we begin to prioritize ourselves? So like the next area I was going to focus on, number seven out of 12, is education, right? Education is an area where black males find themselves particularly vulnerable, especially in K through 12. Up until a few years ago, it was about a rate of one out of two graduating high school in terms of black males, right? Uh, for the most part, over 70, if not close to 80 percent of the teachers were primarily white women. And then you have another eight to 10 percent that are said to be women of color. So already you have a dynamic where at home and in the school, you know, we're primarily socialized by and, and around women. And in many instances, because they're in positions of authority uh, for us as boys, most especially, we learn to prioritize women and girls feelings, perceptions, experiences, so on and so forth. We don't get a chance to necessarily experience ourselves as the center of attention. And so from birth, you learn how to prioritize women. Um, and, and that in and of itself can be a bit of a problem when it comes to actually trying to articulate your own experiences. Right. Let's see here. So in, in that respect, when it comes to education, we have to actually be able to think a little differently about how we can use our position to shape our experiences a little differently. We know that we're not graduating in high numbers and that of course affects college. It affects grad school and that affects professional positions. So if you're going to talk about electoral positions, for example, you'll find that the rate of black uh, women at electoral positions are going through the roof, black males, not so much. And all of that can be seen in regard to education. You know what I mean? It, 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 as early as that, you can see the impact of it. So how can we begin to prioritize ourselves? Well, one of the things I noticed is that, you know, black women will start organization for organizations for women and girls, even when they're really not even needed. You know what I mean? It, it, and I'll see this. It's real. It's a trip. I'll see this with educators themselves who have sons, whose sons are failing, whose sons are, you know, running away from home, dropping out of school. I mean, from 15 to mid 20s, and yet they'll still create organizations for, for black girls when their own sons are dropping out. And there's no link, you know, when even when I have casual conversations, I'm like, you know, okay, so your son is homeless, he's on drugs, he's doing this, he's doing that, and you just started an organization for black girls in K through 12, but your son just dropped out of, you know, somewhere. That kind of thing is what I'm talking about. So how then can we begin to prioritize our experiences? Because at the end of the day, most of us have been through it. Most of us have a story about K through 12 and what experiences we've had being alienated and mistreated. You know, even my own son, there was a good half a semester where his teacher isolated him in the back of the room and separated him off from the entire class. And he was only in second grade. He was the only black male in the room. Right. Um, those are the kind of things I'm talking about where we've all. And, and, and I know if I ask the question, many of you in the chat, many of you listening to this um, would have an experience to share, you know, as far as education is concerned. Most of you would have an experience um, that that speaks to this. So we know that black men are particularly you know, called out in a very particular way in K through 12 system. But we don't necessarily 
think about how we can, you know, begin to prioritize our experience in that because no one else is going to do it. And that's one of the running themes that I've been developing lately. And it's predicated on a lot of the discussions that we've had online, particularly that nobody's coming for black men and boys. Nobody's coming for us, uh, at least not in any way that's helpful. We have to begin to do this ourselves. And as an educator, looking at the number of black male students who are not coming into my classroom, who are not coming into my campus and looking at the numbers nationally is definitely something we have to talk about. And, and that's not just limited to education. I mean, we can talk about, you know, all kinds of things, training on all kinds of different levels, certification for different kinds of, of, of exploits. It, at the end of the day, black males find themselves on the out. And when you look at the homelessness rate, you can tell we are not being prepared for anything and nobody's going out their way to do it. So we have to be the ones to do that. Um, let's see, Ian dropped a comment I think is important, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. We definitely have to do that. Um, right. So how do we begin to do that differently? Well, that's the conversation that I want to start. And as I said last week, I'm not trying to, to create you know, uh, conclusions. I'm actually trying to generate a discussion. How can we begin to prioritize ourselves and our experiences in each of these spaces? So in regard to education, this applies at the college level. It applies in terms of certification programs uh, for different kinds of professions. It doesn't necessarily have to be higher education, but other groups will definitely find ways to prioritize each other. Whereas we've been socialized to think about the black community as a whole, if if that. But in that, we don't necessarily prioritize ourselves and it needs to start. So again, I'm throwing this out as a discussion to start. I'm not throwing this out with suggestions on how it should necessarily you know, end. Um, now, one of the biggest discussions in the Manosphere has been around social relationships, intimate relationships. Um, do we know how to prioritize ourselves in an intimate relationship? Well, I think the Manosphere has been working on that for several years, but in terms of how we're socialized in our families, in our households, and in terms of pop, you know, media, we, we learn to prioritize, again, women and girls, right? I mean, we just had Valentine's Day. Were there any commercials whatsoever focusing on men being celebrated on Valentine's Day? You know, I mean, y'all know the answer to that. We don't often know how to do that, and particularly in the black community. We, we, we don't, and, and I've shared this with you several times. When I engage my students about intimate relationships, my girls and my young women have lists of requirements, lists of standards that they expect men to meet. meet. My men, not so much. Many of us learn to adapt ourselves to what women say they want, uh, but we don't necessarily know how to prioritize our wants and to make that demand. And it's understandable because we're criminalized for doing so. You know, if you say, you know, I prefer women that look this way or, or weigh this much or dress this way or wear their hair natural or whatever it may be, you're socially shamed. Right. You're socially shamed for doing it. Um Good looking out. Uh, JBA, appreciate the support again. Uh, Jesse, thanks for the, the compliment. The interview was definitely fire. Dr. Curry, you know, was definitely there. All right. Um, so, you know, we're at uh, 117 
watching, please get the likes up. Please click that if you would uh, support the show. But anyway, so, you know, going back to the social relationships, do we know how to demand or really first, do we know how to prioritize what our needs and wants are, what our issues are, what it is we need addressed in a relationship? And are we in a position to articulate that outwardly? Most of us haven't been socialized to do that, right? Uh, we, we are generally socialized to accept what we're told needs to happen. And then we go out our way to kind of create it for someone else, but we don't often know how to do that for ourselves. And we don't even often have the language to say, these are the issues I'm having. And I'm especially speaking, uh, as somebody who has been married before, you know, I've experienced that dynamic and there's virtually very little support for men. Uh, who were married. Even when we went to get marital counseling at one point, it was hard enough finding a male counselor, let alone a counselor that actually in practice, not just occasionally, but in practice, saw men's experiences as equal and as worthy of reflection and, you know, and, and focus as women's. I, we went to several different counselors and for the most part, each one took it upon themselves to tell me uh, or to explain to me what her issues were. That was the focus, right? That, that, was the, that was the whole goal. And this is something we talked about with Dr. Tim Golden when I interviewed him. And he talked about the kind of emotional abuse he experienced in his marriage. Even when he went to pastors in terms of marital counseling, the pastors prioritized her feelings, her perspective, not necessarily the men. So even on, in that professional kind of point of view, we're still taught that we need to prioritize her. And, and that leads to an inevitable imbalance in the relationship. Now, it's interesting because marriages start out that way anyway. I mean, even just having the, the ceremony, uh, every place we went to, to, to look into services, clothing, whatever you, you know, whatever you want to look at. There was no industry that saw men as having really any stake in what went on and even just the ceremony. The ceremony was strictly about her. Every place we walked into focused on selling things to her and looking at me to pay for it. I was not a part of that discussion in anywhere we went. I don't care if you're talking about, you know, uh, jewelry. I don't care if you're talking about the marriage venue. Uh, I mean, it, it was always fixated around what made her happy. Um, uh, so those are the kind of things that I want us to be able to become savvy at thinking about and prioritizing and articulating. But, it, you know, again, for many of you in the manosphere, this is not, this is second nature for y'all, but for a lot of black men who may not be in those discussions day to day. And I, and I deal with married men all the time, men in long-term relationships. It, the focus is always about her. And so usually when your boys come sit down and talk to you, they talk to you about the issues they're having and they vent, but, you know, articulating that, you know, in other spaces, especially with their wives, many don't know how, because that's not, again, how we've been socialized. So, uh, but even in terms of friendships, in terms of, of, of relationships with other black men, um, we have to learn how to actually prioritize that. Um, we have to actually learn how to uh, prioritize, you know, spending time, building, doing things, and actually making that uh, an essential part of our lives and not being shamed for it or not allowing ourselves to be ashamed for it uh, or of it. Right. So those are the kind of things that I want us to think about in terms of that. 
Now, the other area has to do with perceptions of violence and homicide. And this is somewhat related to the sexuality discussion, but not dealing with the sexual component. When it comes to black boys and young men, um, for the most part, what we experience is an assumption that we are inherently violent, we are inherently capable of homicide, and that this is an area that doesn't even require reflection. And I think Dr. Curry spoke to that a little bit when we were talking about young boys and their introduction to sex. He actually had to write a paper, you know, that showed through, you know, qualitative and quantitative means that black males actually do engage other people, um, you know, with civility, you know, with, with emotion, with uh, intention, rather than just some, this, you know, carrying out this stereotype of hypersexuality that most assume um, reflects who we are, right? Well, I think the same thing happens in general when it comes to expectations of violence and homicide, Black men are assumed to be that, and not even just by the larger white society. Even in terms of dating, you'll have people uh, women in particular that will expect you to be able to navigate violence in protection of her and measure the value of your masculinity based on how well you navigate those spaces, right? And that's a problem. That's a problem unto itself because at the end of the day, um, that doesn't, that need not be your purview as a reflection of your manhood or your masculinity. Now, if you're dealing with a family and kids and, you you know, that is a, a part of the dynamic that you choose, you accept and you embrace then all by all means. But the assumption that because you are black and male, that you have to be able to navigate violence and homicide to the point of death, to the point of incarceration. And that's not even something to be you know discussed. It's just taken for granted. That's, that's a problem. And I think many black men engage that and experience it in a lot of different nuanced ways. But we take it as par for the course because this is how we've been in many ways socialized. It's expected of us to protect. It's expected of us to sacrifice. And I'm not saying that those things are inherently bad, but I am saying that it, at the very least, boys and men should be able to give their consent. In other words, if I'm going to protect you, if I'm going to provide, that's a decision I make. And, and and I say this because I, I said this in a lecture a few years ago. I was at a conference in Florida once. And at the end of the conference, it was about four in the morning and I was leaving the hotel to catch a flight. Right. Um, and so it's pitch black outside. I'm waiting for the shuttle in front of the hotel with my, my bag. And there's this woman who's sitting at the next bench over from me. Now, I'd seen her a couple of times throughout the weekend at the conference. She wasn't at the conference. This was a Caucasian woman. She saw me a couple of different times, stood in the elevator with me once. She clutched her bag and did all of that, you know. But at that moment, there was a homeless guy who walked up near her and he was talking to himself. And actually, well, he was kind of arguing with himself. Um, but she got a little afraid. And the very first thing she did is look over at me. And she looked over at me to provide her protection. So mind you, this is the same woman clutching her bag a couple of days prior in an elevator when I'm in there with her. But now because she's seen me a few times, she felt that there was some amount of camaraderie enough for me to put my life on the line to protect her if the situation calls for it. Now, again, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I'm not saying you should. But all I am saying is the social expectation that I do so was so was so smoothly there was so you know ever present that it didn't dawn on her 
to even ask my name. It didn't dawn on her to say hello. It didn't even dawn on her, even in her gesture, to ask. It, you know, what she did was she looked at me like, you are going to protect me. You know what I mean? So that kind of dynamic happens every day, particularly with men, right? The expectation, the social expectation that you be willing to sacrifice yourself to protect strangers, right? Simply because that's the going practice. Well, that's one of the things I'm talking about. So when I talk about violence and homicide in that context, I'm talking about the social expectation that you be able to, in, to navigate it, whether it be in the protection of others or mainly in the protection of others, um, and that that be somehow a social expectation placed upon you. And again, it's it, it, right, BGS, undeserved protection. And it's one of those things that we learn how to do and we're told that we need to do even as boys, but it's never something that's outwardly discussed to any great degree. And in many instances, it's not asked. And, and, and you might not even really get a thank you. I mean, if, if that homeless guy had attacked her and I ran over and got stabbed, I'm more than confident she might have ran back in the hotel. Maybe she would have told somebody about it. But, you know, so, again, um, it, it, that's part of the discussion when it comes to men and one of the spaces we occupy. It's dealing with social expectation, especially around issues of violence. And in that respect, we need to be able to, to be in a position where we prioritize ourselves, meaning at the very least, we think about whether or not that's a service I want to provide, whether or not that's something that I need to negotiate, even if we're going to be friends or you know, if I'm dealing with a woman and we're going to be lovers. If that is a social expectation, then that needs to be something we discuss and I need to give my consent. Now, we know, y'all know how we normally talk about consent. You know, when it comes to, you know, her sexual interest, do we talk about consent when it comes to you providing protection, potentially at the loss of your life? Should you be consulted? Should you be able to articulate whether or not that's something you choose to do and have it taken seriously enough that you at least engage in the dialogue? Does it even cross our minds that, yeah, this is a discussion that I'm going to have with you because I value you enough in my life that I'm going to at least consider this. But we don't learn how to do that. Girls are socialized, however, to do that, especially around issues of sex. Boys, however, aren't. Our protection and sacrifice is assumed. And that's one of the things I want to call question to. When I talk about prioritizing ourselves in each of these spaces, that's what I mean, right? Um, the next would be in terms of... Um, uh, policy, politics, and protests. Now, this is an interesting one. Um, a brother of mine, uh, you know, y'all know I've interviewed him several times, Jellaba. Uh, we talk all the time, and we were talking a few years ago about how we uh, we deal with politics. And you know, I, I I've been I've dated a couple of activists, and I kind of got a chance to watch how they kind of do things, and I noticed that especially during the rise of black you know black lives matter men in the long run didn't partic participate in the same way um i met activists you know especially black women who would say i'm going to go get arrested today and then i'm going to go home and cook dinner and then i'm going to take the kids here and and it was interesting cuz when i thought about it i was like i can't imagine telling someone I'm going to get arrested today and being assured that I would get out by five o'clock to do anything. And it was interesting because at the time when we were having that discussion, I realized I had a warrant out 
for a, a, a it was some kind of car related thing. It was a, I think I had a ticket that I didn't pay. But at the end of the day, I was like, I'm not confident that I would get out at five o'clock. I've had boys that that went to court and you know how you can serve time over the weekend and getting a ticket or something off your record. And it was supposed to be a weekend. They end up ended up spending a week. You know, I've read articles where men have been in for months behind trying to protect themselves once they were in, not being guaranteed civil treatment, you know, all kinds of different dynamics taking place. So what does all of that have to do with politics? Well, if you know you're subject to carceral treatment or mistreatment in a way that others aren't, you're going to develop a different political expression. You're not necessarily going to be, you know, you know holding signs and picketing. And one of the things I noticed uh, during this era in 2015 you know, yeah, there was a moment right after the death of Michael Brown where you saw black men and women uh, fairly equal numbers, you know, out in the streets. But one of the things I noticed is the, the protests that had police showing out in riot gear was when I noticed black men came out in large numbers. Um, when I didn't see black men in large numbers, it was a whole different relationship, right? In terms of the 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 the, the police and the protesters, it was a whole different dynamic. I didn't see cops showing out in riot gear. I didn't see tanks. It was a very different thing. And when I first uh, attended my first protest in Los Angeles, um, you know, and I noticed it was 90 percent women uh, and they had shut down an intersection uh, in uh, actually three intersections in three different cities in L.A. They shut them down. Not one cop came. As a matter of fact, the end of that protest was a long march to where a brother had been shot by a cop. And the interesting thing was the cops you know, they, they barred off the traffic traffic. So the March could go and the March wasn't planned. It wasn't structured. It wasn't approved by the city, but it was nonetheless something the cops helped engage, which I found really interesting. And when I began to see black men, you know, at different points in the day, even when I was driving back home to Fresno after that, and I asked them, you know, would you participate? Would you shut down an intersection in a major city? Would, and, and they said the same things like, nah, I got a warrant. Or not, nah, you know, they, they would show up with police and riot gear. All that to say that we have a different relationship to grassroots protest politics because we have a different relationship with the state. So that said, black men engage in political expression in a very different way than other groups because we have that relationship. Right. Uh, so one of the ways I notice it is black males tend to engage it either organizationally or individually. Um, when you look at men who become coaches that, that work at schools with the youth or, you know, set up programs of that nature, that's that's usually how I see black men engaging. Right. That's usually how I see black men engaging politics. Um, but carrying signs, protesting, getting in cops faces and yelling, that's not something I usually see a lot, a large numbers of black men doing unless, you know, it's a given situation like the death of Michael Brown or something of that nature. But for the most part, as a, as a daily mode of operation and political expression, I don't see that black men have had to, to develop different methods for political expression. And because of our educational status, many of us aren't, aren't even in, engaging electoral politics in, in, in that way. Um, and that, too, also has to do with us not being able to generate uh, the kinds of financial support that others do. But that's a whole different discussion. And I'm not saying that this should or shouldn't be. I'm simply saying that we need to consider what exactly is 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 a way that we want to participate. Right. 
uh, whether it be in terms of politics, in terms of, uh, you know, even pro policymaking or protests? What are the ways that we want to participate that are more reflective of our lifestyles and what goes on? How do we centralize our own experiences in coming up with how we want to participate on political grounds? Because it has to happen. Right. That was one of my problems with Black Lives Matter. I used to actually ask them, you know, are you dealing with the fact that black men are incarcerated even at these protests in a different way? Are you dealing with the fact that they're not coming out as quickly as others when they do get arrested? What even if it is for you know political purposes? Are we dealing with the fact that even though we're protesting for a black male that's been killed, the conversation is being baited and switched to other issues? Right. Are we dealing with the fact that, you know, occurrence after occurrence after occurrence? And I've said this before is about nine to 20 black women killed by cops every year. It's about two to three hundred black men. But you're shamed if you mention too many black men. Right. And, you know, so that that alone, you know, kind of showed me that there was a different focus here and that black men actually be have to be able to articulate for themselves what exactly their participation and political mobilization needs to look like, whatever that may be, electoral, grassroots, doesn't matter. I'm saying simply, do we know how to prioritize that? And then taking it a step further, do we have a list of issues that pertain to us? I mean, one of the movements that's come out in the last few years, um, you know, the Antonio Moore and Yvette Carnell, you know, in terms of the ADOS movement, very interesting, very, very powerful. But one of the things I'm coming to, and I was talking to Dr. Curry about this when we got offline a few moments ago, was that if you don't account for what black men are beginning to articulate, I am not confident that any movement will be able to provide the kind of uh, improvement we're looking for. Right. I don't think so, because at the end of the day, this is a new voice that black men are having. It's a new discussion. And like I said earlier, it's one that's really predicated on social media because prior to social media, you kind of had to filter your thought, filter your experiences, filter your ideas through certain mainstream channels, Richard Pryor, Eddie Murphy, maybe Chris Rock, maybe a celebrity over here would do something like, you know, I think a few weeks ago or months ago, actually, maybe a month ago, I think Jay-Z was, was supposedly, you know, organizing something about um, the prison situation that was going on in Mississippi. That had to be the primary mode of expression on black male issues for many years until social media. And then black men actually got to compare notes and dialogue with one another about their experiences, right? So it, we went from, you know, the barbershop to, you know, Eddie Murphy, for example, talking about in Raw, the divorce of Johnny Carson. And that's where you kind of got to see this moment where men were like, huh, hmm, so this is happening. And then that transitioned over the course of maybe, you know, the, the mid 2000s, where you actually had black men talking about their experiences on a granular level. Well, that has generated a new worldview, a new outlook. Because I have black men writing me from all over, Aboriginal brothers from Australia, uh, African brothers, I have brothers writing me from Europe, and of course, all throughout the US, right? And they're finding out, or we're finding out, that we're having the same experiences in different places. And that's starting to generate a new outlook. So that said, with that new outlook developing, I'm not confident that any ideology or movement for uplift 
uh, black or otherwise will work as long as you continue to ignore the voices and concerns of black men. But on the other side of the spectrum, black men have to be able to articulate them and not just in terms of intimate relationships and or sex. Uh, shout out Pierre for the support on PayPal. Appreciate that. Um, we have to be able to articulate an agenda specific to at least the 12 areas I'm talking about that outlines what it is we're looking for, what it is we want, right? Uh, that's incredibly important. So in the, in the realm of politics, what kind of policies are you looking for? Are you looking to support candidates that are willing to talk about family court and, 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 and redress for men? Are we looking at politics that are willing to address with carceral treatment of black men? Are we looking for a politic that is willing to address the fact that so many black males on a national level are having trouble with literacy by the time we're talking about sixth grade, where their rates are any, in, anywhere between 70 and 80 percent, depending on the state you're talking about, illiteracy rates? Are we willing to have those kind of conversations? So it's not just about what presidential candidate you're going to vote for. What are the politics what are the policies that we want to see? And are we willing to at least have that discussion? Now, I'm not saying we're near a point where we can leverage that, but how are you going to ever leverage it if we're not even willing to articulate it? You know what I mean? Is there a politic for black men? And what does it look like? What are the areas that it comprises? Well, I'm giving you a cheat sheet. These 12 areas are at least a starting point for us to say, okay, how can we actually address black male life on different set of terms? And what are those terms? How do I prioritize myself in these areas, right? How do I create an environment in whatever, whichever of these areas I notice myself being in that is suitable for black men, right? So in terms of politics, what's the kind of environment that's conducive for black men to participate in? Are you a part of a party or a movement that is inherently hostile to black men? Is that not something that we should question, right? Um, the next area is kind of related to employment, but different. I talk about, um, uh, good looking out, George. Thanks for the support on Cash App. Uh, the next area I'm talking about is is finance, income, and wealth and status, right? In, in terms of finance, um, I, I kind of separated it from employment, there, but there are some overarching linkages. Um, one of the things I ask people is, do, have you chosen to be in a space that is hostile to black men or supportive of them? Is there any way that we could even begin to have a conversation about monopolizing space in any particular profession? And have we begun to make steps to do that? Do we, op do we operate with other black men? Do we hire other black men? Do we support other black men, right? So if I need work done on my house or if I need my car fixed, do I at least entertain what other black men are doing? And I'll tell you, that's one thing that I will say black feminists do well. They support each other. They, you know, academically, they cite from each other. They use each other as resources. And every time I turn around and they're opening businesses, they're opening businesses in league with each other. And I think that's definitely something that black men could take a, a you know, to, could take a cue from. Right. Even on YouTube. And I asked this question on the show where I did about does brotherhood exist? I asked if black men could actually see themselves as brothers. And it was it was surprising to read through the chat and and actually hear, you know, black men in the chat trying to start arguments with other black men. And I'm like, well, that's precisely the question I'm asking. But brotherhood would take the question a step further in terms of, you know, when we start talking about, you know, 
income, well, really finance and working with one another, hiring one another. Do we prioritize each other to the degree where you're going to be my first stop before I look elsewhere? Right. That, I mean, that's one of the things that, that I'm, I, I didn't know anything about coming online and talking. First person that sat me down on how to do that was BGS. And shout out to him, man. I really appreciate it. You can see him. He's still supporting in the chat. Um, you know, Kendra was incredibly supportive, angry man supportive. But it's not just about whether or not it's one camp. It's was my first stop another black male? Am I willing to extend that as a starting point? Can we build from that? You know what I mean? And that's the kind of question that I think we need to learn how to ask. Because if we're going to talk about investing, that's a lower level of investing, right? That's why I shouldn't say lower. That's one level of investing. Uh, are we going to invest in each other, right? That's the question I'm going to ask because, like I said before, fellas, nobody's coming for us, right? Can we come for ourselves? Can we support one another? Um, a number of people came out to listen to Tommy Curry earlier, and that's precisely what I'm talking about because I guarantee you, Nobody else is reading Tommy Curry like black men are, but without black men, you know, where would the discussion actually be? So we can come for one another in certain instances. Can we broaden that out? Right. Take the model of what we what we saw a few moments ago, a couple hours ago with Dr. Tommy Curry. Can we apply that to each other? Uh, I think there's space for that, but I don't think we know how to do it. I think we've been bred to compete. Uh, even problematically so. Um, I think we've been bred to undermine each other and whether it be for money or, or sexual attention, but we've learned how to see each other as obstacles and, and, and um, you know, opposition and not necessarily as uh, brothers in arms. And that's the, that's the framework that I would like for us to entertain. Can we actually function like brothers in arms? Do we develop a method or at least a, a, a target or a goal in a number of these areas I'm talking about where we learn to prioritize the black male experience, right? Those are the kind of things that I'm looking up, uh, looking up at. Okay. Um, let's see. Religion and spirituality. Now I'm not going to go into what religion anyone should practice or what church they should go to. That's not the focus. The focus of this, this is are we placing ourselves in a space that is inherently hostile to black men, black masculinity in general? Are black men in positions of authority, right? Or are we subjecting ourselves yet again to not only religious spaces that are hostile, right? But even religious ideologies that are inherently hostile. Is there a, 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 a legacy or a history of hostility, most especially toward black men? Right. Does the idea of black men or black manhood, even at the spiritual level, even at the metaphysical level, is that treated with hostility or disdain? Or have you placed yourself in a space where it's at least welcome? And I said this before, when I talk about, especially on Facebook, some of you who, who follow me on Facebook know I talk a lot about um, the sacred black masculine. And I say that 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 can be an abstract metaphysical concept. You can apply that spiritually. If you so choose, you can look, you know, back to ancient religions and look at the, you know, the, the framework for uh, the sacred uh, masculine. Or you can talk about that as an abstract quotient just in society. 
But in either context, whether you deal with it spiritually, metaphysically, or just as an abstract quotient, is it are you in an environment and in a space that is inherently hostile to the very idea of it? Earlier today, I think actually last night, I posted a video that I found on Facebook of Mike Tyson, and he's fighting Larry Holmes. Um, and he said that he, you know, he wanted to knock Larry Holmes out, particularly to what Holmes did to Muhammad Ali, right? Um, and taking the belt and so on and so forth. Um, and it was interesting. It was beautifully done. It was a beautifully done vis uh, video. I didn't make it. It's on my Facebook page, though. Uh, and it highlighted a relationship between a 14-year-old Mike Tyson who got to talk to Muhammad Ali over the phone. And he, he talked about how he cried the whole time he saw Larry Holmes beating Muhammad Ali. And so in a way, he saw Ali as a father figure, right, in a particular way as a hero that he looked up for, uh, looked up to. And they, they skipped to another part where Tyson, I would say very recently gave an interview where he talked about Muhammad Ali and he was in tears. He was choked up because he talked about what I, what Ali meant to him. Uh, and, and that's one of the things I said, you know, in, in my labeling of the video, I said, fathers come in many forms. And I said, honoring the sacred black masculine. And the reason I said that is because, um, Tyson was defending Ali and he was going to get revenge on Holmes for Ali. But anyway, the reason I bring that up is because, you know, many of us have had to find fatherhood in unconventional ways. That, by the way, is another abstract quotient. When I talk about the masculine, doesn't have to be just a, a god or a heroic figure. It can very easily be a masculine influence that you honor and respect. But at the end of the day, is there space in our cosmology for an appreciation of that quotient, right? Do we have a framework for being able to do that? Um, that's the kind of thing I'm looking at, right? I've had black men who have had a, a, an incredible impact on my life, including my father, um, uh, that, that, you know, has shaped my outlook, my grandfather, uh, who was an imam in New York at a particular point in time. My father, who's a pastor, he just retired a few years ago. Very powerful men. But then, of course, I also have men who weren't blood related. You know, my stepfather who lives here in Fresno. Uh, and then, you know, men I met. You know, I'll give you a story. One example is I, I, I moved to Philly to work on my master's. I finished my master's in a year, but I did it mainly because I was so isolated in Philly. I went to, to Temple. I didn't know anybody, didn't have any family or friends. And I was so lonely that I just decided to just crank it out and get done as soon as I could. And I remember the first several months of getting there, I couldn't find work for nothing. Um, and so, you know, things were getting particularly hard. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And there was a janitor that used to work in the, in, in the housing area. And he, he had a big afro, he was an old brother. We never spoke, but I made sure whenever I saw him, I, you know, I nodded at him. One time I shook his hand and I just extended respect. That's all. So one morning, like six in the morning, he's, he's, he's knocking on my door. Again, we never spoke before, but I opened the door and I said, how are you, sir? Is there anything I can do? Um, and he said, well, he gave me a piece of paper. He said, I heard you were looking for a job. You know, these people are hiring and I shouted them out for you. They're waiting to hear from me. Right. Never talked to this dude at all. You know, but I did. I made it a point, though, 
to make sure that whenever I saw him, that I paid him nothing but respect. And he did the same with me, but he was an older brother. Anyway, so, you know, he ended up getting me a job. And matter of fact, he even brought me a TV that morning. <laughs> but, you know, the point I'm getting at with that is I recognized that what he was and what he was willing to do was be um, kind of an exemplar. He was willing to be, uh, uh, you know, a, a black man who supported younger brothers um, for very little other than mutual respect. He didn't ask anything of me. You know what I mean? And he did that out of the kindness of his heart. And for me, that's kind of what I'm referring to when I talk about the sacred black masculine, right? The father figure who actually, you know, is willing to play a role in your life in one level or another. Uh, for many of you, if you've been in this space, y'all know that to be like BGS, you know what I mean? But at the end of the day, can we conceptualize that? Now, that can be applied all the way up to a spiritual level. If you want to deal with spirituality and religion, you can apply it to that. You know, but it, it, it the reason it's a spiritual concept or spiritual reality is because it actually has roots and anchors in what we call the material world. It's just a vibrational issue. But nonetheless, all of these things apply. So when we're talking about religion and spirituality, again, the question is, can you prioritize the black masculine idea? It, are you have you put yourself and your family in a space where that's respected? where it's welcome, or are you in a space where it's hostile, right? Now, again, those are just some things that I wanted to throw out for consideration and discussion, because I'm hoping that especially in the chat, we can actually talk about um, whether or not there's space for this. You know, what, what does it mean to identify areas where we have to learn to prioritize ourselves and can we do it, right? Is it important enough to us to do? Because no one else is willing to. We talk a lot about the respect black men don't have. Are we willing to demand it? Are we willing to make sure we place ourselves in a position where our support, our resources, our attention requires that respect? And I hear stories every day and, and I've experienced my share of them where we experience nothing but disrespect and we're still willing to keep going on and providing what, uh, what others expect and assume from us. Um, so I'm hoping that we can actually begin to do that a little differently. Um, 72 paths. Huh. Yeah, I need to know who you are, brother. <laughs> yeah, Black Gnostic Studies, Spaces Relationship. Indeed, it absolutely is. But that's that's the kind of conversation I'm, I, I want us to be able to have. I want us to take what we're talking about and, uh, and apply it into a larger spectrum outside of just women in relationships, even though I think that's important. I do think it's important, but I think we also need to apply it to a variety of other areas and ask a different set of questions, right? Starting with, okay, we are, how are we vulnerable in these spaces and what can we do about that, right? Can we prioritize ourselves or have we been too socialized uh, and shamed into seeing ourselves as secondary, if not tertiary, if not at all? Oh, what's up, Ronald? I hear you. Um, can we do that? Right. Those are the kind of questions that I want us to be able to ask. What's up, Ronald Neal, um, as well as my brother, Ronald Stagg. What's going on? Um, you ain't got to tell me you're from Dominguez, brother. I know who you are. <laughs> you're one of the brothers that brought me in when I was coming in as a first year. So much respect to you again. Older brother. You know, my brother, Ronald Stagg in the comments He's one of the brothers that took me under his wing in my first year uh, coming out of high school, you know, at Dominguez Hills in L.A. So or uh, shout out to him. 
Um, but anyway, that's all. I'm not going to hold y'all long. I appreciate the support. Got 181 people watching. Again, please hit the like button. Uh, please share. Please subscribe and hit the bell if you haven't already. And definitely please support the show so we can keep on doing it. Next week, I'll be back on uh, Interlight Radio. And as usual, I'm live at 5 p.m. Uh, Pacific. And then I'll post it to YouTube a little bit later. Um, but at the end of the day, this is a conversation. This is not a proclamation on my part. It's actually a, a request for a conversation to actually for us to be able to have a discussion that expands what we're looking at to the areas of black male life that most need it. Because at the end of the day, again, and I'm going to say this for the last time today, fellas, ain't nobody else coming for us. So we have to be in, begin to transform our environment to suit us in a way that at least allows for the basic level of respect that comes with or should come with the sacrifices asked of us. And there are all kinds of sacrifices in all kinds of ways, but many of us have only learned to give and, and, and that's in many ways been taken for granted. We haven't learned how to require for ourselves what is needed. Right. So much appreciation to all of y'all shout out to you in the, in the, in the, in the chat for the support, like who strikes what's going on. Unreasonable man. Good to see you. Um, you know, yeah. So peace to all of y'all. Um, I'm going to go crash. Uh, and I got, no, I got to cook dinner. So I'm going to go take care of this boy real quick. Um, but anyway, holla at y'all later. See y'all next week. Peace.